Hey, everybody. Welcome back to my show. I am Allison. If you're new, you can find me on Instagram at a devotional heart where I post images and um, just things from my life, but also having to do with Orthodox Christianity, which I am currently learning about. I am a catechumen and I started this channel to interview other Christians and particularly Orthodox Christians so that I could learn more about the faith. And today I have my first guest who is a member of clergy. This is the first father priest that I have had on my show. And I've known about him for several months from his YouTube videos and just seeing him around the orthosphere. His name is Father Deacon, Dr. Ananias, and he is the CEO and founder and president of Patristic Faith. Father is an Orthodox apologist and professor of philosophy at Fullerton College and Carroll College. He has a BA in liberal arts from Thomas Aquinas College together with a master's of honors and PhD in philosophy in epistemology, philosophy of science, and philosophy of mind from University College Dublin. His current academic work focuses on philosophical theology, epistemology, and the philosophy of science. Father is the author of several articles and peer-reviewed papers, including Serial Materialism and the Mind-Body Problem, Gnostic Scientism and Technocratic Totalitarianism, an orthodox approach to the dangers of modernity and technology, and an orthodox theory of knowledge, the, episto sorry, the epistemological and apologetic methods of the church fathers. He is also known for his YouTube channel, The Norwegian News, where he provides content on theology, apologetics, logic, and philosophy. Welcome, Father. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you, Allison. It's an honor and pleasure to be here with you. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, relativism. And we're also going to talk a little bit about philosophy and orthodoxy in general. But first, um, can you just give us a little bit of background to how you even decided you were going to be a priest, a professor? Just give us a little bit of a backstory. Yeah, somebody was, uh, one of my parishioners was asking me, we were all over for Thanksgiving and a blessed Thanksgiving to, to all of you. Um, I was over at my parishioner's house for Thanksgiving and they'd asked me a similar situation. Have you at all, a similar question. Have you always known you would be uh, clergy and how did that come about? Um, and the answer was no. Uh, obviously, through my schooling, I wanted to do philosophy and became, uh, the grace of God, a professor of philosophy and have always enjoyed that. And I, from a young age, I was involved in apologetics um, and I was <clears throat> introduced to Christian apologetics and philosophy roughly at the same time. Uh, I was brought up evangelical um, Christian. I went to Calvary Chapel High School, and my senior year Bible classes, they, they brought somebody in to teach 
Christian apologetics and introduction to logic. And that was kind of the first time that I had been exposed to that. And it was it's such a wonderful point in time in my life because I don't know if any of you've had this experience, but you know, around 16 to 18 years old, um, if you are religious yourself, um, as I was, I began to question things. Well, how do we know that? And why is it that this person is correct on, on this? And I always kind of had an anti-authoritarian and, and, and skeptical kind of attitude, especially in my youth. And so that was kind of directed towards um, my religious upbringing, too, and not because, you know, I just wanted to do disruptive things, but I really deep down wanted to have answers and good answers for believing things. And I wasn't getting it. I was getting to don't ask those kinds of questions. That's a lack of faith and a lot of kind of guilt trips which was just making me more upset. I'm like, these people don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, There's obviously an insecure, if you don't have a good reason to, to believe something like, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to believe what you're telling me. I need good reasons. And sure enough, God brought somebody into my life who all these deep um, philosophical theological questions that I thought I'd come up with, uh, he had mentioned, oh, that's super easy, blah, 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 blah. It just rattled it away. It was the first time I had actually heard cogent answers and defenses for the things that we believed in Christianity. I thought it was great. I was like, this is incredible. And especially because I really wasn't motivated to study anything because I have a motivational problem. Uh, it turns out that I have to like things and be interested in them to, <laughs> to do anything. And so I just had no interest in school whatsoever because mm-hmm. there was nothing that I really liked or saw could be a practical benefit to me in any way until this. And I started asking for more materials. Where can I go? Uh, this is fantastic. I mean, it really just kind of woke me up and motivated me. And I was directed to some Christian apologetic and philosophic groups that met in Orange County. And as a young 18-year-old kid, I, I started attending and soaking all of this stuff up. And that really became like a foundation for um, my apologetics and philosophical work going into um, the various higher academic institutes that you had mentioned in um, reading out my bio. And I fell in love with it, you know, and i I. I I incorporated that into kind of my faith. I never saw kind of philosophy and the Christian faith as opposed and was able to kind of work through those things. And yeah, that's kind of my background on had no intention of being clergy. Um, even, Even when I became Orthodox, I had no intention. And part of that was, I mean, we all have kind of idols that we construct, false narratives about ourselves, um, about who we are, about the world, and about other people. And I wasn't immune from this. 
either, you know, I had insecurities growing up of not being intelligent um, or having value and stuff like that. And so what human beings tend to do is overcompensate. Um, and I constructed a kind of narrative on my insecurity where we'll all be valued if I'm an academic, if I'm a professor or something like that. And that was the identity. And uh, we talk about identity politics and stuff like this, that I am this or I'm now as Orthodox Christians, we know that all of its nonsense that our identity is in, in Jesus Christ. We're made in the image. All the other stuff is just distractions from that. And I, you know, fell victim to the distractions where who I am is a professor of philosophy. I'm an academic. That's where all my worth and value. And there's a real kind of pride in that too. Um, that, oh, this is a more noble trait than any other. Um, philosophers are particularly, or maybe any professor, um, that's a particular temptation. Dude. Um, of course, I know more than everybody and, and I'm, you know, more valuable than everybody else. Why aren't they paying me more um, for? So that was me. I constructed this kind of false idol of I'm the philosophy professor, I'm the academic. And so that's why I never considered kind of the clergy. I was asked by my priest, uh, have you ever thought about, I don't think he asked me, how about, he, he mentioned, how about we make you clergy? Let's send you to seminary. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I said that because First, I knew what I knew what that meant. I was like, that's like going and sign up for the army, like but permanently. <laughs> I'm like, your life's no longer yours. And what was most important to me at the time was my academic career. And that I needed the freedom to be able to move and do whatever I wanted um, to further that academic career. And I perceived at the time when that question was asked that being clergy would be an impediment to that. And so I rejected it. And the priest said, well, okay, just go pray about it. And came up to me about three months later and said, you know, I was thinking about something. He's my spiritual father, by the way, too. He's a Romanian priest. And said, you know, if God wants you to be clergy, um, there's very little you and I have to say about that, dude. And the, he had put it that way, and it hit me that way, that you're putting yourself first and your ideas about what's right in the world. And I just kind of at that moment introspected and realized, well, how great is my track record when I put myself, when I'm self-focused that way about what life's supposed to be and where I'm supposed to go. And I answered that question, I made a disaster of it. And it hasn't produced happiness, uh, fulfillment. And it just hit me. And I realized, uh, I kind of surrendered. I realized that I'm tired of doing things my way for myself. And I'm ready to become a servant forever. And that's, especially the, the, the diaconate in the priesthood, they are the servants. They're the lowest 
authority level of the priesthood. Um, and they serve, they serve the people, they serve the priest, they serve the bishop. And I was ready to do that. I was ready to change my life. And I accepted that and, you know, went to seminary and was trained and there was true fulfillment. When I put the, the other um, first before myself, I always struggled with boredom um, growing up. And that's because nothing satisfies. Uh, you know, it may provide a momentary enjoyment to things of life, whether that's jobs academic stuff. I mean, usually the higher stuff like academic and, you know, it lasts longer than, you know, just kind of banal physical pleasures and stuff like that. But it wasn't ultimately fulfilling mm -hmm. because insofar as that it's self-focused. And when I chose to become a servant and make my life no longer my, my own, but give to the people and to the church and to God, um, that was the first time in my life that I had no, no feelings of boredom or things not being right. I realized here I am, my true place, um, as we are created to be, um, not as a professor, not as this person, not as a musician, not as an artist or whatever once, but, uh, is the image of Christ and Christ came as the servant. Yeah. And so I've been fulfilled ever since. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an easy life. Um, very little pay, long hours <laughs> dealing with the world's problems, like all of the, but it's worth it. It's, I mean, if you think about it, we put ourselves through, um, I mean, just if like you work out or something, there, there's all kinds of stuff, whether it's school or working out. We'll put ourselves purposely through uncomfortable things or even painful things because what in the end, the goal that you're trying to achieve is worthwhile. And I think for clergy, it's the same. Um, it's not all, you know, happy, um, go lucky all time. It's a hard life. It's a really difficult, but it doesn't matter because the fulfillment of becoming the servant and serving the people in the church um, is all it's, it's worth anything. And it's a type of martyrdom too. Yeah. Can I go back? Can we, can I ask you a question about your conversion? I'm always mm -hmm. interested in what drew people to orthodoxy and how did you know that you wanted to become orthodox? Well, I just got my scientific calculator or matter 3000 out and I just plugged in all the stuff and the answer just popped out. And I knew that. <laughs> um, let's see. I was probably first introduced to orthodoxy. Um, 1998, 99, around then. 
And again, this is right when I was starting to get into philosophy and apologetics. I was dissatisfied with my evangelical upbringing. Uh, at the time when I was in high school, I really didn't have kind of any tools or kind of a framework to kind of interpret the feelings. And therefore they just came kind of as intuitions and feelings like something's off and something's wrong. And it made me upset and I didn't like it. And I really didn't know how to kind of, interpret. I mean, it's already confusing enough when you're in high school trying to interpret your feelings. So you're going back and forth. Like, am I, is it me? Like, am I, I guess I'm a bad person to know. I think these people are jokers. And so like, I don't know, I don't know what they're doing or what they're up to, but like, it's not right. And I, I don't know really know why, but, and so being exposed to philosophy and apologetics, I was starting to get uh, given a toolbox in which I was being able to, to articulate this. And one of the early questions that I had, even bef before I was introduced to philosophy and apologetics and theology, was the kind of worship, the music and, and various things in an evangelical church, it bothered me. And I started asking questions, why? And was it the style of music? I'm like, I really don't like the music. And, and so I started asking questions. Can you do anything you want? That, I remember that in high school, that was the first question I started asking the pastors. Because they were, and this will tie into our conversation about relativism. Because relativism seeped into uh, contemporary Western Christian culture, particularly evangelical Christianity, um, and kind of emphasizes like the feelings. Well, who are we to judge how anybody worships or prays or something like that? To each his own, as long as you know you're doing it your way. And those are kind of the answers that I got that um, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's the heart, right? It's so... Don't judge and let, let, let's just have any kind of expression you want. And I remember asking, so wait a minute, you're telling me you could put a death metal band up there and start punching people out and mosh, like you would accept that. And they were like, well, no, that's a bit too far. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Now you have a standard, um, you know, you're inconsistent because you were just telling me that anything goes, but there are things that are too far, right? And so if there was a standard, I'd like to, and I think we all admit that when we start kind of introspecting that like, no, I, there is stuff that would be not acceptable and appropriate to worship of God. So it isn't relativism. Now I want to know if we all have this kind of, intuition that there is a standard i'd like to find it i'd like to know who's correct and that kind of started my journey and when i was exposed to philosophy and theology and christian apologetics one of the questions that became really important to me is what is church because again this kind of relativism would come in 
hey man <laughs> I, I don't need a building the church isn't a building like church for me bro is like out on the wave like just you know <laughs> getting the curl for christ right um and i was like like, like really? relationship it's all about relationship not religion i hear that a lot yes and it was more this kind of like spirituality not not religion rules and that it was experientialism so there's a couple different things historically that go into this kind of modern evangelical phenomenon and that one is relativism and the other one is kind of phenomenology and uh, existentialism and these various things that all that's important is what you experience, the kind of phenomena. So if you're spiritually connected to God and nature, why isn't that church? And they got to set up this dichotomy that if you negate that, then you're a dogmatic rule, pharisaical ceremonialist. And, or you're open, your heart's open to God. And doesn't that sound nice? And just, you know, we just all encourage everybody just to experience God wherever they can find him. If it's in Christ in the curl on that shred in that wave or in the mountains or with your eye, people say like my church is the Christian apologetics groups that we go to. I don't need to go to a preacher and this is where I connect to God. I heard that a lot. And um, from the age of like 18 to 21. And a lot of these people that I hear this from are also sola scriptura. Like they, like, well, what does the Bible say? They always want to say, is that in the, you know, are the yeah, icons in the Bible? Well, yeah, yeah. there is scriptural evidence for why we need to be in communion and in community and be part of the body of Christ as a church. But yes. they don't look at those no, it's, verses, I guess. Or they have they have pre-commit ideological pre-commitments that color what they read mm-hmm. yeah. to the point um, they may not even read certain or even knew that those verses, no matter how well they had memorized their Bible verses, because that I don't know about you, but that's something I discovered when I came into Orthodoxy that all of a sudden I started finding all these Bible verses that I was like, I never remember reading that. (laughs) No, I, I have no experience with Christianity. I went right from new age for my whole life into orthodoxy. I mean, there was like a six month window where where I was a Christian, but I didn't know what orthodoxy Mm -hmm. was. So now I'm a catechumen, but. um. Praise God. (laughs) So anyways, um, I started kind of delving into that question that, and I remember, you know, 18, 19 working out that there's obviously a difference between things that Christians do, Christian things and church and Christians fellowship together. They give almsgiving, right. To the poor, they, um, they pray to God when they're in nature and things, but none of those things seemed like church to me. 
those are like parachute things that you Christians would do. Mm-hmm. And I started looking historically into it. The one common denominator was uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Um, I'm like, that's always been present. You know, I did, before I knew more about, you know, kind of the history of uh, the church and things like that, that immediately stood out to me is that they were always partaking of communion. And that seemed to be something essential. So if that were true, then none of this stuff or whatever you decide is, is church. And then I, I started to realize that, you know, that certain prayers in the service um, was historically founded, uh, that had a historical foundation, that it was the people gathering together and praying, and, and scripture talks about this too. You know, when you said a lot of Protestants say, Where is that in scripture? And um, remember, in the scripture, it says they continued, I, I believe it's Acts, they continued in the prayers, the prayers, not they just were praying whatever willy nilly kind of prayers that they wanted. It's there was obviously the prayers, uh, very specific, a definite article there. And so I started to realize there was some type of liturgical form and that it wasn't a free-for-all and that um, you don't get to decide, you know, what music's going to sound or what kind of worship. And that eventually led me to considerations about the Eucharist itself um, that, I had a fundamental chance. I prayed to God that if, if this is because I was brought up thinking and kind of a wingling um, kind of way of it's just a symbol. We just do this in memory of um, and baptism was seen the same way too. Uh, it's just a sign. There's nothing really of God present in there. It's not efficacious in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really the energies of God or the presence of God. It's just a sign that we do of our love and commitment to, and that's the way I was brought up. And I started to realize, especially when I went to Thomas Aquinas College, because I went there not only for the education, but to learn about the church history and get as far away from evangelical Christianity as possible. Because I saw, I, I started to get the kind of tools and equipment to realize it's insane. Um, like it's literally just a made up subjective uh, man-made religion. And that I had a deep desire in my learning to see the connections related historically and that there were rules and standards and studying the church fathers. It became immediately apparent to me when I was at Thomas Aquinas college, although I didn't want to become Roman Catholic. I was open to it. The more I studied, the more I started to actually realize, I'm like, no, this is not actually good. Mm -hmm. A a lot of the issues there. But what it did do is it gave me an appreciation for historical Christianity. And I realized all the Christians believed in the true, the real presence, like Christ was really present in the communion, the Eucharist. 
And it's not till later that, that you just, people just make up, oh, it's just a symbol or something like that. So what I did is at that point, I didn't want to become Roman Catholic. I was exposed to orthodoxy at that point. And I was, it was kind of mysterious. I really didn't kind of understand it um, and its relation to Roman Catholicism. But that's where I was introduced about 1999. I knew about the Eastern Orthodox Church and what I did, I wasn't, you know, particularly interested in, you know, thinking like, is it, is this the church? It was just kind of, oh, it's interesting. I wonder what kind of weird group. And, but what I did do is I returned to my Lutheran roots. And that's because I didn't want to become Roman Catholic. I wasn't ready to become Orthodox, but I realized well, there's at least Lutherans have some sense of authority. Um, and they, at least they believe in some sacraments. They believe baptism is not just a science, it's efficacious, it's uh, the Christ is truly present. Mm-hmm. And the Eucharist, and I like their uh, anti Rome polemics too, to be honest. I was like, sweet, I'm, <laughs> I'm going with these guys. So uh, I stayed Lutheran for a while, and then um, it took me about 14 years of life experience in studying the Orthodox Church before I actually became Orthodox. And wow. it was, wasn't just studying, too. It was um, a tremendous amount of suffering and pain that just absolutely humbled me, because that's what's most fundamental in orthodoxy is a level of humility to be able to actually see um, the truth of. And so, yeah, I converted uh, 2013. That's a long story. There's much more involved in that and feel free to ask anything, but that's kind of the summation of what actually happened. And my wife and I, you know, uh, December 17th is our 14 years anniversary of being married. And she went to the same high school as me. So she knows she has the same experience as me. And we were catechized and came into the Lutheran church. And we converted together um, and accepted the truth of orthodoxy at the same time. So it's amazing that the experiences that we actually had that led to, so she came in and was baptized the exact same time as me into orthodoxy. And did, and you mentioned the Serbian father, I think, right? Romanian. Oh, Romanian. Yeah. I'm in the Romanian Episcopate OCA. And um, I was baptized in the Antiochian and soon was kind of taken under the wings of my spiritual father, who is Romanian. And uh, prior to moving to Montana, that's, I served in a Romanian parish. We don't have any Romanian parishes here in Montana. Mm. Um, We have OCA, Serbian, and Greek. And I served between, currently between the, services in the OCA in Serbian, mainly Serbian. So do you give confession to? No, no. So deacons 
in orthodoxy, unlike both Roman Catholicism and certainly Protestantism, are considered part of the priesthood. And that's a threefold sacerdotal order of the priesthood. So deacon, priest, presbyter, and bishop. And they all have different things that they do and obviously the higher authority. The priest can do nothing of himself without the authority of the bishop. And the deacon can't do anything without the authority of the bishop and the priest. So even when I go to to pray or to to do litanies in service, I kiss the priest's hand and get his blessing. I derive my authority from that authority going to the priest to the bishop. So what that includes, I cannot consecrate the Eucharist. That is only the bishop and the priest. Um, I have no power of my own to baptize, to marry, to any of the sacraments. Now I can serve with the priest. I can do the baptism with the priest, right? Because he's there. He's he's granting me the authority to do that with him. I'm a co-celebrant, con-celebrant. via his authority and power via the uh, bishop. Um, I could deliver the Eucharist. I can't consecrate it. I can deliver it. I cannot do confessions, but I can touch the chalice. I can touch the altar, touch the the gospel, the utensils. Um, I can give the Eucharist to somebody, um, but I don't have any of the authority to to administer the sacraments and of myself. Great. Yeah. I don't, this is all new to me. Yeah. These are the things that I'm learning right now. So thank you. Where do you find out how complicated the, the liturgy and beautiful, not complicated in a bad way, but. No, I know. It's yeah. Deep. I love it. Well, let's get into relativism. If you want to jump into that now. Yes. So relativism there's kind of two versions of it, um, either moral or uh, kind of epistemological. Epistemology means having to do with knowledge and statements being true. But generally, it's the idea that the truth of a statement or a situation is relative to you or your society is the standard. What that means is there's nothing independent. There's nothing true independent of the way that you see things or your group or your culture or society sees. And whereas, and it's a denial of that very statement. It's, Relativism or subjectivism, which is uh, basically each, the standard is each person. Each person just decides what's true. There's nothing independent of them. Mm-hmm. Relativism might be like, well, it's relative to a group or culture, society or something like that is the standard for what's true, right, wrong, et cetera. 
it's a denial of objectivism that there are some things that are true um, irrespective of your feelings, your desires, the way that you see it, what you want, um, or you at all. Um, maybe we'd say one plus one equals two, or that the sun is out or something like that, whatever. There's a series of things that, that you might actually qualify as candidates for objectivism, but relativism is there is There are no objective truths. Mm-hmm. And that sounds particularly appealing um, to people today. Mm-hmm. And we just, so, it sounds very tolerant. So it's, it sounds yeah. like, like the, the virtuous way to be right. Yeah. So it's because, well, look, and I get this all the time. It's tolerant because objectivity um, requires absolutism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and maybe it just to find absolutism is different than objectivism. That objectivism would be that there are things that are independent of your desires, your thoughts, your perspective, or you, as far as being true. Absolutism is that those truths apply equally in every place and time and stringency. And so it's kind of like a matter of degree. So one has to do with objectivity has to do with the status of truth claims and morals and absolutism has to do with well, how stringent are they applied? Um, and that just seems maybe difficult for people to, maybe they'll even, maybe some people will be like, well, I guess I could grant maybe some things are independent of us, but if you're telling me objectivity leads to absolutism, then I'd have to say in every situation, it's right or wrong or true or false. And that doesn't actually seem to be true. And so there's a flexibility. Now that ends up being false because objectivity and absolute um, activity are two different concepts. So the one doesn't imply the other. Just because things are objective doesn't mean that that rule or truth statement um, or right or wrongness will be seen to be played out in every situation exactly the same way. I mean, if you even think about like the way that judges work within courtrooms, there's the rules that are established independent of you. But how they're applied and what context and various things um, will differ because that has to do with um, the stringency. Maybe there is, you all admit, the golden rule, the rule of charity or love, but that might play out differently in different degrees or look like different things. And so it's not absolute. Um, think about like, for example, I don't know, um, like marriage or something like that. I don't have to give, right, the, the love, right, in marriage might be an objective principle, but that might look different in different cultures. Like in our culture, we're not going to 
um, give like three cows and uh, two calves or something for like, right? As a way to express, right? That's that's what absolute or stringency would mean. So that argument doesn't work, but people think that in their mind. Well, if relativism is true, then it's objectivity and then everything would just be applied equally in the same way across the board. But there's a variety and there's a nuance in our culture. So we can't accept absolutism and therefore we can't set objectivity, but that doesn't follow. Um, any questions about that? And then I'll move. No, but I'm reminded of um, some of my audience might know that I'm a life coach. I'm a Christian life coach now, but I was involved in the secular coaching industry for a long time. And I was coached myself. And the the final call with my last coach that I worked with, uh, we had this discussion about absolutes and um, mm-hmm. relativism. I mean, she she was clearly a relativist and we we just got into this, not argument, but she thought I was upset with her for believing that there's um, no such thing as absolute truth. And I, and for me, I was just like, well, I just can't work with you. I mean, <laughs> I can't work. I can't have a coach who thinks that everything's true and nothing's true at the same time. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, like I brought up earlier too, is it's not consistent. Mm-hmm. And because it's not consistent, it's hypocritical Yeah, that we all know that the people who preach tolerance the most are the most intolerant right. people. Exactly. Um, but, and I say this for all of us, not any particular groups or uh, people commit to certain ideologies. Mm-hmm. We human beings um, lack and often want to avoid introspection. Mm-hmm. And philosophy literally is the examined life. It's to go below the surface in appearances, the way things appear. Um, and that's even too in our relationships. I mean, people put on their Sunday best, right? Their best appearances when they go on dates. But think about it. We're all philosophical in our relationships, right? Because we're going to go, is that really how the person is? I'd like to know what under the appearances that they put on. And I'd like to know who I really am. Um, and because it seems like we as human beings generally will do everything we can to avoid those kinds of Mm -hmm. of things when it comes to ourselves, maybe we do it with other people because we're actually selfish. Perhaps I want to know because it'll be best for me, but if we train ourselves to kind of be uncritical um, then we're not going to see that we're inconsistent and hypo- hypocrites. Mm-hmm. That's why it never occurs to most people that when they say there are no object, I'm a relativist, there are no objective truths that 
that they're making that an objective truth. Yeah. Right. Well, there at least there's one that you just said, so that can't be. Um, and they don't get it. Like even when you bring that up, yeah. and that's because. I think about ideas is like viruses mm-hmm. and philosophies and systems. They're mind viruses. Mm-hmm. It's not just simply about arguments. It's that just like you can do with substances um, and actions, you can get yourself into a bad state of affairs that you're no longer capable all by yourself of helping yourself, right? This is exactly what they tell the addict, right? You, you got to admit they have a problem and that you're, um, you're helpless in a sense to solve your own problem. Now, it's not like when somebody says that, they're like, oh, well, thanks. I'm all done. And here's $200 an hour for the therapy session. And I'm all better because we've conditioned our well, uh, way into thinking that way and acting that way. And therefore, we need a rehab, a rehabilitation. And that's why philosophies, good philosophy and the correct theology should be a rehab program to get us to start thinking about ourselves, the world, and our fellow human beings and God in the correct way. Mm -hmm. That's why when you present them a relativist, such an obvious um, contradiction. There are no objective truth. Is that true or false? True. Well, then you've refuted yourself. Why can't they get that? Because they're addicted to nonsense. Mm -hmm. They can't, they're, they can't think they've got a mind virus. Yeah. And so no simple, you know, I just presented it as a simple argument. There's not going to be a simple argument that gets them out. You have, there's a kind of training and rehab to kind of get them out of thinking incorrectly about the world. So I think that's important to, to bring up because in philosophy and apologetics, the psychology is just as important mm-hmm. as the formal kind of arguments and stuff like that. Why are they believing that? Why can't they see that? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, commitment to other false ideas that sound good, but just because something sounds good, is it good? Yeah. Um, well, what, look, it seems to me that we've all heard, you know, various moral disputes. Well, everybody has a right to their own opinion. You have your view and I have my view. Hey, maybe we're both right. That kind of, <laughs> so this is the argument uh, from equal rights, mom. I, I don't know why. I always, every time I hear this argument, I think of like Peter Tosh or something. Uh, Rasta. Rasta, like equal rights. <laughs> I and I, equal rights for all. Um, equal plausibility, equal rights. Um, but again, this is an uncritical kind of way of thinking about it. Yeah, everybody has a right to have an opinion. But that doesn't mean that the, their opinions are true because they have a right. I think what we mean by if we unpack it and we're critical about what does that mean is 
it should mean by equal rights is that, well, I don't think people should be blackmailed or brainwashed into believing positions. They should have a right to hold a position, even if it's false. So look, that means once we unpack that, that we realize, well, objectivity doesn't destroy equal rights. We just mean by that is an, an objectivist who denies relativism would say, yeah, I don't think somebody should be brainwashed into believing something or coerced. Mm-hmm. They should be free, even if it's wrong. So I think that that's something that's important to kind of unpack. Do you any questions about that? And I'll keep going. No, no questions. This is so fascinating. I love it. Keep going. And this is probably connected to that. Well, objectivity supports dogmatism. Um, just pick any blowhard or tyrant or Nazi or political fanatic, and there's all one thing they have in common. They're objectivists, right? <laughs> um, they believe in truth with a capital T. And this actually came up uh, recently on social media, there was another professor that had posted something in regards to religion or the Pope or something like that. And I made a comment kind of offhanded, like, yeah, all these religions are false and they should convert to Orthodox. I, you know, baptize them all or something. I forget what. And this guy came, he was like so upset with, and he used the same argument that, and they got to use the national socialists, right? But that's exactly what the national, so the third Reich thought too. And look what happened to, um, I actually pointed out. Did they mean the fascists? Yeah. Like any, uh, that's why I said, pick your favorite I mean, okay. it's not literally your favorite, yeah. but for favorite example mm-hmm. of a blowhard tyrant right, or right, political right. fanatic, right? Mm-hmm. Plug whoever you, this guy had picked Hitler and the Germans and the Burma Republic. Okay. That these people, they believed in objective truth. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they just killed everybody that, uh, that didn't agree with them. Now I pointed out that I said, actually, you're wrong. That's just that's you're wrong on a lot of different levels, but they weren't more, um, they weren't objectivists. They were relativists. And that if you look throughout history, any culture or society that abandons objective truth in favor of relativism no longer has any court of appeals to resolve disputes. What is relativism? I am the standard. My society is the standard of. Now, when you get conflicting groups, there's no, we can't, if you know, and we always do have conflicts as far as what positions are true or false between individuals or or groups or societies, nation states, et cetera. Um, What are you going to do? Well, let's go look uh, together at a standard that's independent of us. You are the standard. That's what relativism is. My group is the standard. Mm -hmm. So how are disputes resolved then Mm -hmm. 
if you can't appeal to a standard independent of you mm-hmm. through force mm-hmm. and violence. Mm-hmm. And or this even is just- debate and have a conversation mm-hmm. and a discussion about it. It's just shut down and not yes, welcome. exactly. And so this is just played out in history that anytime a person or group of people abandon truth of the capital T and embrace themselves or their society as the standard for truth, then um, disagreements are simply worked out as uh, the stronger, the stronger wins. Yeah. There is no notion of truth. It really kind of, so it's simply might makes right. Might makes That's right. the way yeah, of the way say. of the jungle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so they don't realize that, that, and mm-hmm. I always, not that I quote um, Roman Catholics, but it does often, um, but it does illustrate the point. The late Pope John Paul had said, he went to, obviously he was brought up under another totalitarian regime um, of communism and goes to Poland, which was under the communist uh, yoke and asked the people and the crowd was two plus two equals. And they said, somebody yelled out, whatever the communists say it equals. And he says, no. Unless two plus two equals four and always equals four, the Polish people will never be free. Once you abandon that, yeah. you're just handing over to the power group. Mm-hmm. You have no more appeals. Mm-hmm. And so people don't realize that, that no, objectivity does not support dogmatism. Um, and so, look, in fact, it doesn't even fall, even if they, you granted that argument, it doesn't even fall logically. Again, dogmatism, I mean, in the negative sense, like being unreasonably closed-minded or something. Right. Yeah. Or something like that. And that's a key word, right? You, I think all of us should be closed-minded to certain things. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, like torturing innocent people for no reason, just to get kicks or something like that. You, I hope most people would be closed-minded to that. But I would say we, re, we have a reason for that. But unreasonable closed-minded is probably, if you unpack the word, what people find uh, negative, the negative connotation of dogmatism. There's a good connotation of dogmatism too, but when people usually use that word it's as a negative connotation, that's probably being unreasonably closed-minded. And so, but the fact of the matter is objectivity, right? The denial of relativism or subjectivism is not about the stringency, but about the status, right? So it doesn't tell you how you would apply that. Um, It doesn't tell you, um, even just believing like I'm an objectivist, it doesn't tell you what actually is objectively true or false. Mm -hmm. It's just saying um, whatever it is, it's independent of us. Right. So I don't even see how it it follows logically that it would make you unreasonably close-minded. 
Um, and the next thing is that I think people connect this to, well, if you're not a relativist, um, then you're intolerant. It's right. that, yes. that's, yeah. They're all kind of, it's kind of underlying is that it seems intolerant. Yeah. And we all want to be tolerant, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if we, we'd have to tell people they were objectively wrong. That doesn't seem to be tolerant. I mean, people, you know. Because I'm a good they, person and I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to be a bad guy. You're the bad guy if, if you don't. Hey, and everybody it. marches to the beat of their own drum. Who am I to say? Who am I to say? that they're, you know, I don't want to be judgmental. Um, we'll have to just agree to disagree because everybody's view is just as equally valid, right? That's the tolerant um, outlook. Um, my moral outlook, my views are better than anybody else, right? And you see this, that if you were to say that something's objectively true, then I'm making myself better than mm-hmm. And I'm suppressing the other. I'm not being tolerant. That's kind of like the underlying, mm-hmm. probably, uh, motivator behind all this. And so it's like, I realized the other day that when I was going over this in class, I'm like, that's really interesting, the connotation of tolerance. Because um, it already admits I mean, if you use it, like, if you think about the way that you use, you use the word in other situations, you start to realize it admits that something's bad and not good or, or not true, but I'm going to tolerate it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people even realize it. I mean, when they're using this, I'm tolerant. You can come back and say, oh, so you are admitting that something's either morally disgusting, false, right? But not so much that you do something about it, right? I'm going to tolerate, right? Um, my neighbor's making a bunch of noise um, with the screaming kids and barking dogs and stuff like that. And um, I find it somewhat disturbing. Well, that's got a negative, but guess what? It's not so bad that I'm going to actually go over and say something. I'm going to tolerate it. Um, I just thought about that this semester, I'm like, that's strange. Like we should point that out to people that tolerate hasn't that, which is not what they want. They want to say that, no, it's just as equally as nothing is better. But it's like, no, the word betrays the real kind of attitude about, no, I think it's actually wrong. That's why it's, it's literally impossible to actually say that all views are equally valid. Why? Well, because my view is that your view is false, (laughs) right? So you can't actually, you'd have to say, well, yeah, that's just as good as, which destroys your whole position um, and makes it meaningless. It's like, now you're just like psychobabble, right? Like you're talking not, I don't even know what you're saying at that point. Um, Yeah, any questions about, no, this is great. It just reminds me of, um, I won't go into detail, but a conversation over text that I had this week with someone who I've known for a long time. And um, she's concerned that my platform, 
and some of my guests are not tolerant enough, perhaps, of her far left liberal feminist views. But is she tolerant of the guest that maybe yeah. thinks there should be some rules Shouldn't and regulations? Shouldn't you be tolerant of in the, my intolerance? Because mm-hmm. that's just an equally um, valid position according to the philosophy of relativism. Mm-hmm. All positions are equal. So you can't, uh, this is the way you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't actually say that and then be like, but these, I, I won't allow. Yeah. Um, I find morally disgusting or, and we'll get into questions too. Um, I mean, you could always add like, well, why is that true? I mean, again, part of the issue too, is that if something is just sub- subjective, I'm the standard for the notion of truth and falsity just kind of goes out the window. Um, There's no longer any debate. You can't actually say, well, you shouldn't actually hold this view or that view is not true. Um, All you're doing is now just reporting psychological states. I feel I have a notion of disgust or something like that, but any, and, that, and that's the tragedy of uh, relativism is that it comes with a cost. You forfeit all debate and disagreement. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just going to be reporting their own psychological states and feelings. But there's nothing true or false or morally binding about psychological states. They're just reports. Everybody's just reporting different chemicals and reactions going on. And people don't realize that, that. You can go that way. I mean, in the sense of you have a right to, um, but it comes with a heavy cost. You can no longer tell people they're they're wrong on any position. Mm, right. You forfeit debate. You forfeit law, like ethics in general. And we're all just everything's equally valid as just psychological states. And I don't think they think about that. No. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. But that's part of the kind of rehabilitation program is to realize, oh, that's not actually good. Not only is it not, not only is it nonsensical, it's not healthy, right? For the individual and the community. And I got to get out of that. There's a problem. Um, Also, I think that what motivates this too is that there's cultural variation and it doesn't seem that objectivity allows for for that. Um, They think like, well, look, if objectivism is true, if it's not relativism, um, then these truths would apply universally to everyone in every society, but some standards don't, right? Um, What did I use the example of, I mean, what the, you know, fulfilling your duty or something like that. Let's say we, we have some type of standard, fulfilling your duty of um, showing respect to family members of one's beloved. Okay. Now, 
that's express that's not <laughs> expressed in cultures exactly in the same way because if you're in the sedan right um tribes if you don't provide cattle as a dowry <laughs> it's going to be seen as a fence right and here that's not and so what we could show is that again that's just not a thought out it's a half-baked thought that no objectivism doesn't mean that there's no cultural variations right because look what would be an objective rule or standard you should show respect to the family members of a beloved one but that's not going to look exactly the same in every way Mm -hmm. and also objectivism doesn't state that every situation in every aspect of life um is objective. It says some things are objective. So for example, um, I imagine attire and and clothing and stuff like that would be a a classic example that varies across culture that I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'd be comfortable with saying every circumstance that if people don't dress according to my right style and where in that culture that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, well, obviously they're, or particular tastes that um, um, my student, I have a student that she'll forever, we were joking in class because I'm like, you're forever now going to be my example, philosophical example that she said she doesn't like tapioca pudding. We're going to be like, no, you're wrong right? You're just false on. So there's clear cases of things that are completely dependent upon the individual and their preferences or experiences or a culture or something like that. That's not mutually exclusive to objectivism. Objectivism allows for some variation on, um, remember, it's relativism that is the intolerant position says there are no examples or situations that are independent of the individual or society. That's really the intolerant objectivism doesn't say this is there are some, which is the actual logical uh, contradiction. So um, that doesn't seem to follow. Also, I'm going to, you know, I often used to focus on just the the logical contradiction and inconsistency of holding that position or the intolerance of saying all views are equally valid or all positions. But I found that people really like this argument. What is subjectivism or relativism? That there's nothing independently true of me or my society, meaning I am the standard for truth, or my group is this, or my society is the standard. That means I'm always right. I am the standard. How could I ever be, if I am the standard of truth or my group is my society, how could I ever be wrong? If that's true, 
it comes with the, and you accept that, that comes with a, a terrible cost. You can have no moral improvement as an individual or society. Why? Because improvement um, accepts the idea that I'm below where I should be at. I'm wrong in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I'd like to improve. But if I'm always right, if I'm always the standard or my society is always a standard, how could you ever improve? I think most people are completely unwilling to accept that as a consequence. There will be no improvement. Every society will be equally, they can never progress. They can never get better. And do you really want that? So again, just remind people when you're talking to a relativism, you're free to go that way. It comes with a terrible and heavy cost that I don't think you want to accept. No, this is really tying into my whole, my journey to Christianity because I was a relativist new Mm -hmm. ager for 30 years and my truth was my truth. And I could Speak do whatever. Truth, I, yeah. yeah, I could I could do whatever I wanted. There was no no talk about uh, repentance or or anything yes. like that, or judgment from no, nothing about salvation, you know, none of that stuff. So I could do whatever I wanted, believe whatever I wanted. And and I didn't realize how much pride comes with that and how much humility is required yep. to unlearn that, you know, it was a, it still is a process of seeing how I thought I knew everything because, you know, I did all these drugs and had all these truths revealed to me through these psychedelics and um, all the Eastern mystic yogis that I read about. And, um, I had never read the Bible. I didn't know anything about moral objectivity. So, it's- and by the way, you know, um, I totally agree with you. I gave the hippies a chance. I really did. Um, I've been to the dead, right? I followed the dead when I was young. Like, um, so I know that. Um, and I really gave them the benefit of the doubt. And that I'm like, all right. Um, because they preach tolerance, right? Like, hey, man, yeah. no judgment here, good mm-hmm. vibes. Um, and I found personally that the most intolerant, some of the most intolerant people I've ever met and some of the yeah. most judgmental. So what you have there is you have a facade. And again, like I said, we all put facades on that this is the way I want you to see me. I'm open and um, this is love, right? Right. I'm just being loving um, and tolerant. Everybody's right. Nobody's wrong. That sounds, it sounds and feels good, but we always have to ask ourselves, is it? Um, First of all, is that really what you believe? Because we can put you under certain tests, litmus tests to realize, oh, wow, you're now really, dogmatic and intolerant um, and won't accept and you're not loving they'll, they'll get angry and aggressive oh yeah well it's like that doesn't seem like good vibes like hippie <laughs> like doesn't seem the way of the dead bro um hey man don't what's uh what's a, a phrase that don't bring my vibe down no there was a 
hey man, don't put your don't put your junk on me, man. Like don't think <laughs> there's like always like kind of phrase that, but also is it good? Like, is that you know, I not only is that really what you believe, um, but is it really good for you and for all of us to actually, but most people don't go there. Like the, 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 there's no introspection there whatsoever. And um, so we need to, we need to go what's actually right, true and what's the actual beautiful. Um, that's what's loving. And I was going to say that the whole attitude it's not just in the new age and the hippies and stuff like that. It's pervasive through all of our contemporary society. Um, it's I, me, mine. It's self and I am the standard. Um, it's those rules are intolerant, right? You're being judgmental. Well, what's the other option? Me and my freedom, right? Uh, me, I'm the standard. And people don't realize it's literally satanic. That is literally the um, the temptation that the devil in the Garden of Eden gives to Adam and Eve. Right. You will become like God. Who need? Who is he to tell you you can't eat? How judgment, like tolerant, objectivist God? Like, shouldn't you be free to decide? Aren't you the standard? Don't you want to be God? And you can be God. Um, and if you think about it, that's exactly what, even with moral issues, I've had people, you know, kind of ask me, um, inquire into orthodoxy about certain moral issues that I don't know if I could join a church that believes this. Um, that seems intolerant. Um, these group of people or these groups of people positions or something like that. Well, um, what's the option? So either you're the standard or there's a standard independent of us. So that's the epistemic, right? That's the, the status, right? It's either objective or it's not. Then there's the issue of health. And I mean that both spiritually, bodily, and psychologically, and I always present orthodoxy as this. It's not a dogmatic, pharisaical, rule-governed. It's a rehab program. Do you want to get better? Do you want to get healthy spiritually, physically, and psychologically? Then we've got a program for it. And what the Orthodox Church teaches is that independent of whatever we want or our desires, we want to be true. There are certain ideas and there's certain actions and behaviors that are destructive to the body, the soul, the psyche, spiritually, and both to oneself, your loved ones in your community. And God in his omniscient divine wisdom without coercion has given to us what things are true, what things are false, what things are good, healthy versus destructive. And then he opens the doors to that hospital and says, you're free to come in. 
you're not free to come in and say, you have to change your position. That's the dogma. That's the intolerant, right? Relativist who says that. Um, but the other way, and you can begin to heal. You can have moral, spiritual, and physical improvement, improvement in relationships, working that rehab program. Because the standard is no, there's a surrendering, and as you said, Allison, a humility. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, can you imagine an addict going to like a, oh, you guys don't know what you're taught. You're so judgmental. Like, I'll fix myself, right? I'm right. I'm the standard. It's like, well, good luck. Like, you got yourself into this situation and you can't get yourself out. And you're miserable and unhappy, but then you don't want anybody's help, which is a picture of exactly what hell is, right? The inability to receive somebody's love and reciprocate it. I'm not taking your love. I'd rather be miserable as an addict mm -hmm. and upset than to receive any help. Why? Because I mean mine. I am the standard. I am God, right? Um, and there's an anger and wrath, right? Which should be immediately evident that well, that can't be true. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and peace. <laughs> like I can judge somebody's philosophy and a moral ideology, but just be on like, well, it's kind of interesting. You're an unhappy, angry person, right? Like, I don't want that, right? And I know that it's false. The other way, like I said, is I am the standard. There's no moral improvement. There's no intellectual improvement. There's no communal improvement because you're always right. And that's what relativism is. So now people are told that, no, don't find a way to better yourself. Find a church or a philosophy or a religion that you agree with that meets your standard. Well, you're free to do that. But it's a life of destruction that leads to death. Right. And it's certainly not loving of the other to actually take that route. I'm the standard. And we know who says that Satan does. It's satanic. Like, and I presented that. That's the dichotomy. Two worldviews and antithesis, but you're free. You're free to choose what you want. You can choose yourself, or you can choose and coming back to the very beginning of. The, uh, our conversation, you can choose the other, a life of service, right? Uh, the Greek word is kenosis, to go outside of yourselves. One is self-centered and focused, that's satanic. The other one is an outpouring outside of oneself. One actually is even no, and that's exactly what the devil does, right? He mixes truth with falsity. Yeah. That um, there is something true. You'll be Come like God, you, you know, um, but there's something false about it. Uh, think about the position of relativism that, oh, it's tolerant of all positions, but underneath it's intolerant. It's the most judgmental, dogmatic um, position you can take because it's self-focused. Mm -hmm. There is nobody other than me. I am God. Right. That is taking, right, the appearance of truth, but there's a lie underneath. Takes the lie, the falsehood, and presents it as true. Have you ever counseled a non-believer who said, I, 
am of service and I just don't believe in Jesus Christ. I, I do good things all the time. And, um, but I just don't feel like I need to be a believer and I don't need to accept Christianity. Like, what would you, what would you um, it, I mean, each person differs. Um, I might give them certain things to think about because I never want to be coercive. Right. I want them to look, I'm going to just give you some things to think about some questions. Um, and you should work through those and come to your own. I'm not going to tell you, you have to believe this. I, I believe this. Right. Um, and I think there's good reasons, but I want you to come to that on your own. Yeah. And so I might get them to think, well, let's just, maybe you should think about the question. What makes an action good when you said that, you know, I feel I'm a good person that is it you like, what's the standard? Like, what are your reasons for, have you ever thought about that? Cause it feels good. Um, because, you know, I am the standard and then you can kind of go, there might be some problems that you want to think through that comes with the cost. Right. And then what I usually encourage people to almost on kind of a therapy is look for the time being, let's just ignore all the kind of theological questions of like, was this and, it really does. What do you want? Um, everybody should, most people don't even ask that question. They just go, they don't know what they want. And we need to kind of take inventory and be like, what is it that I want? Do you, just, do you want yourself to every desire to be satisfied no matter what? Um, do you desire to become better? Do you desire to like, it's kind of work through that with people. And then do you desire to become a certain type of person? And what would that look like? Why would you think that's a good, well, think about rather than getting up on the, the theological stuff, let's think about it practically. Every religion Every philosophy, every system is a program that if you work the program, it can, it'll make you a certain way. And, you know, there's even among different programs, there are some people that are appealing to us that, well, they stand out, maybe a Gandhi or um, a Swami or something like and. I would say usually in those systems, though, they're pretty rare. Um, but think about, well, what is it that I like about this title? How do I respond to you? Then I encourage people, have you read the lives of saints? Get to know who these people are, what type of person they are. And they're so numerous. They're not a rare occurrence. Um, because of the humility, they're oftentimes unnoticed. They're not political activists. They're not in the spotlight. And so it takes some investigation to find out, my God, 
there are, I mean, if you look at the Synaxarian and the amount of saints each day, um, you'd be blown away and you start to read these people's lives. And here you're moving away from the mind, like all the rules, the theology, and into the heart. We relate to one another and God, not by our intellect and discursive reasoning, but through our news, the heart of hearts. That's where you have a personal encounter and you can have a personal encounter with the saints. And then I just ask a simple question. Do you like it? Do you like these people? Would you ever want to become like them? Then we have a program for that. If you don't go find you're free, go find the program that you will make you be the way that you want. That's it. But investigate it. Know what you want to become and then know what program produces a particular type of person when that programs work and then go find it. I don't know what else to tell somebody, but there's a freedom in that. Um, I find that that's most successful. So it's difficult being clergy because you have to constantly switch modes from like, Oh, I got to talk to a person as a therapist and a counselor, right. Versus, um, uh, debating or right. I mean, I've had people, um, I've written, you know, arguments and very forceful about, and people will say that get offended mm. that, um, well, you're criticizing my belief and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? That'll never lead to somebody converting. Um, mm-hmm. Now, first of all, people always fail to, to recognize this. Usually when I'm debate, my intention is not to convert the person I'm debating with. That rarely, my audience, my um, object of intention is the audience. I'm to show, first of all, I'm a, when I'm doing apologetics, it's, I'm not doing conversions. Right. I'm defending my faith. You're defending your faith, yeah. Yeah, I mean, great if that happens to actually convert somebody, but that's not my primary object of intention. I'm defending my position by tearing down your strongholds is foolishness. It's retarded, right? They don't hold any, they're they're inconsistent, they're dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. And then I defend myself. Um, But usually when you're attacking your opponent, they're not going to be, the receptive to that. So I've never thought that going into a debate or argument that like, Oh, I'm really trying to convert you. Um, But, and the the second thing is nobody's going to convert because this person was saying, you know, I have this Orthodox priest that comes over and they don't do your arguments and, you know, tear down Roman Catholicism I mean, they're nice and they do. Um, and I'm like, well, being nice and you liking the priest and thinking orthodoxy is cool is never going to get you to convert mm-hmm. unless you see that I have a fundamental problem in my belief system and paradigm. All you're going to do is see like the relativist. Well, that's cool. That person's really like, I like stuff about that. Right. You'll never go, but I'm abandoning ship and going over to them unless there's a problem with your ship and you're never going to find out that there's a problem with your ship 
unless somebody presents an argument mm -hmm. that the positions that you hold are folly, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and wrong. Yeah. But I told the person, I'm like, that's just one particular mode that I take on. I don't go over like when I'm um, visiting the sick or, you know, family members, right? Trying to comfort, be like, hold on, you're all wrong. I'm giving you an argument for why you need to convert, right? <laughs> I know how to adapt out of the mode of doing philosophy and apologists mm -hmm. and be with somebody, maybe not even say anything, just yeah. I'm going to hear what you have to say. So I found I'm offended. I find it offensive mm -hmm. that you would think that I only have one mode of operating. Well, he just sits around and argues and tells everybody they're wrong. I'm like, <laughs> when, when I'm in a debate, yeah, like, or writing a paper, but like, typically not outside of that. Like, I know how to <laughs> talk to and relate and have, listen to people. So I found that that was kind of funny. You got to switch your kind of mode sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be gentle. Um, sometimes you need to be harsh. That's another criticism too. That's not nice. That's not orthodox. Yeah, like, that's not Christ-like. Jesus wouldn't talk like that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, nice is not a virtue, either in antiquity or in the Bible. Right. Love is... But love's tough sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always a, a happy feeling. And so, you know, there's a, a time and place, on a, you know, and, and season for everything. You have to be nuanced. Um, Jesus isn't a hippie Jesus. Um, pacifist. Not all our saints are um, like that or... Uh, Saint Seraphims, Aserovs, some of them are warrior saints. Yeah. Um, a priest sometimes isn't always, you know, um, fluffy feelings. Sometimes they, I mean, can you imagine if, like, we said that to our parents growing up? <laughs> yeah, you can't tell me that. I'm wrong. Yeah. Like, you can't ever yell at me. That's not nice and Christ like. Um, no, sometimes parents have to. To spank us and sometimes they have to tell us harsh things right that are going to make us cry um because they love us not because they enjoy watching us suffer right? mm -hmm. so that's important i think as well to think through that and i think you'll find just generally i'm just amazed the general just lack of nuance that people have um, literally black and white thinking. You always have to be like this and never like, it's like, now there's something about the world that's really interesting. What did I always say? They invert, right? This is why we know it's satanic, right? right. And false. Yes. yes. Is that um, they'll say, you shouldn't be so black and white. Um, you should be more nuanced. And I realized holy smokes, some things you really should be black and white on. But the things that you should be black and white on, and we could think of several examples, they're like, oh, it's not so clear cut, right? Um, you know, murder of the innocent. I mean, it's not so 
I mean, does it really come down to pro-life or it's like, well, yeah, some things really do come down to an either or. Um, should I torture this innocent person for no, like, oh, come on, man, don't be so black and white in your thinking, right? I mean, we got to be more nuanced. And I'm like, yet the things that they should be nuanced on, they're black and white on and vice versa, the black and white things um, that really are black and white, they're always saying there's nuance. It's inverted. It's perverted. Mm -hmm. It's false and it's destructive. And I thought about that the other day. I'm like, that's really interesting. I was on Tristan's channel, you know, Primal Edge Health, and we had a discussion and there was one comment that was, you know, she was just sharing her perspective that I had when I was a new ager. I looked at her channel and she teaches chakra balancing mm -hmm. stuff. And um, so her comment was long, um, but she said that Allison's views are very extreme. And and on, on this discussion, I was sharing how my life has changed, accepting Christ and um, becoming Christian versus how I, how my life was when I was in the new age, mm -hmm. so I was really sharing my own journey, my personal story. And she's, her comment was that I was extreme and that my views were black and white and that we shouldn't be creating more division. So her mm -hmm. concern was that by me sharing about how my life has improved leaps and bounds in only a year and a half of being a Christian, that I'm creating division and she included something about the yin and the yang, like life is about balancing the masculine and feminine. And um, I don't, I don't see my channel or my story as creating division at all, but um, what we're talking about just reminded me. Yeah. It might be helpful with people to ask first, let's just help them in kind of a therapy sense of, and good philosophy really is therapeutic that let's just roll back and what do we mean by this term? What do you think that word extreme means? And maybe they've never thought about that. Um, maybe ask them, are there no positions that you think you should be extreme in the sense that you, um, do you feel that what you're saying could be perceived? It, notice how the, the, <laughs> the therapist is always could, right? How would you feel? Um, could you see that it could feel that the person's feeling attacked? You know how they're always, yeah. it's like non-committal, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you can do that with the, that, could you maybe see how the other side might perceive that is divisive and judgmental? <laughs> Have you ever thought maybe how they would feel with the, um, and then later you can go down the road of like, well, is it? I mean, am I correct to think about, and you often find this, right? Like, like again, it's the, the hypocriticalness of, it's always the divisive that are saying the other is divisive. It's always the one right. committing the crime that's accusing yeah. the other of, the you are the one that, and again, this is the way of orthodoxy. Let's go inside. Maybe I'm wrong about, maybe I'm, this doesn't make sense and it's inconsistent. Or are you just like, are you always right about that? Then 
Why are we having a conversation? There's no relationship. If that literally is the sense of being dogmatic and the unreasonable closed mindedness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, we just help people with why are those things true that I believe are, do you, are you, do you care about that? Do you care about just being right or thinking you're right? Or do you, are you interested in finding out are there reasons to think that that might be right or false or wrong? Mm-hmm. Would you like to go with a journey where we explore those things? That there's reasons. That's an openness. I love that. I love that so much. You're helping me. I mean, I'm learning so much from you right now because my immediate response to my friend the other day, I was just so like, how could she think that I'm creating a platform for hate with my channel? And I just got very, I got defensive. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, it might have, maybe I. Here's what I do too. And as Orthodox, um, we're all going to be working on this. Let's get out of our passions and our old habits. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I try to train myself to do, if I'm upset or defensive, I won't respond to somebody. Um, Just because it's good for the other person in the state of my own soul, but I actually won't say correct things. I'll be unreasonable. Mm. Um, My fight flights up, right. And my analytic modes down. And so I don't have to, uh, that's the other thing I tell myself. I don't have to, no matter how much it feels like that, because I'm always like, I hate leaving stuff unsettled. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, the thing in my mind's like, we got to deal with it right now. You got to call the person up right now. You can't let this, I mean, how do you know what they're thinking? Right. Those are all the like demonic thoughts that how do you, what if um, <laughs> they're literally unrealities, right? That what ifs are not actually saying what is, yeah. what if they take it this way? What if you don't say that? And how do you know that? And it's just like, ah, and then you, you're all emotional. You got yourselves all emotionals and then you end up, doing something rash without thinking it through. And then you end up regretting. it's like, oh man, I messed my relationship and that opportunity. So I've learned from a lot of mistakes that I've done. And so what I'll do is tell myself, I don't need to respond no matter how bad. And it's like anxiety. Like you feel like you're having a panic attack if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is from the demons know how to work on me. Because I'm one of those persons that I got to know. Um, you ask my wife, it's the craziest. Thing. If there's a missing sock, it doesn't matter what our priorities are. Like, we're going to miss it. Like, we're going to flight. I'm like, nobody move. <laughs> there's a missing sock and I don't know where it is, right? Something's not right. And she's like, it doesn't matter. It's a sock. We'll buy more. And I'm like, yeah, but where is it? Right? Like, um, and she's like, So that's more important than the flight. And I'm like, I know we got to catch the flight or we got to meet these people. But like this thing pops up in my mind. Yeah. What about, where is it? Don't you find it weird? They kind of like, did somebody come in and take your socks and do this? And um, it becomes really emotional anxiety. And it's like, it makes it so that I can't actually function in life. I'm like, oh, these missed 
his job interview and the flight. And uh, why? Because he couldn't find and know where his sock was. His missing sock. I mean, how absurd is and ridiculous is that? And it's the, the demons know that I'm like that. Mm. And so they'll do the same thing with people too. Mm. Um, well, you don't know. You don't know unless you, t- you, you write them right now and you got to confront this, right? And so I have to recognize that that's going on. And then two, I have to train myself. You're emotional and you're in your passions. Um, step back. Give it some time. The world's not going to end. Nobody's going to change. The person's not going to change their position. Um, you're not going to die. if. And then I get out of my emotions and my passions. And then I can revisit and know what to say to that person. And, then, and I'm always thankful that I'm like, I'm so glad that I didn't initially write or say something to a person there in, in the now because um, uh, I would have been wrong. It would have, I would have messed it all up. You know what though, in, in my marriage, so my husband is more on the side of waiting to think about, you know, really like, think about the situation Mm -hmm. before he just blurts out. And whereas I take that as he's ignoring me or um, not making it an important enough issue. Like, Oh, I see you've got better things to do or, Oh, you're just ignoring me. But no, really he doesn't want to, like you're saying, he doesn't want to just be in that emotional space where he's Mm going to say something that later he he wouldn't have said if he would have just and in a marriage we just kind of remind ourselves that um because in relationships there's all these assumptions well obviously they just know i'm like this i don't know why they don't um we got to go outside and go i wonder how my spouse is perceiving this yeah um maybe I shouldn't just make assumptions that my wife knows what I'm thinking or this is how I, and remind that, Hey, uh, this isn't to um, not say that I'm not hearing you. So so we got to speak these things out audibly. And that one's really good. Um, I hear what you're saying. Um, this is not to shut. Nobody likes to be shut down mm-hmm. and feel like they're not being heard. Um, and that's often a big thing in, in relationships. And so it's good to remind vocally that it is a form of communication that it's not to shut you down or um, I don't want to hurt you. I want to take some time to think Yeah, this is how I am, you know, um, and then flip it back. Is that okay with you? Like is because we also don't want to feel like our autonomy and our decisions are being taken away from. Um, so these principles are much more difficult to work out in marriages and, than um, just people online or friendships, yeah. I think. <laughs> and they may look the way they work out uh, different too. But like we said, in principle, it's a, the same same thing, same kind of rule that we're I love how this conversation went into like a marriage counseling session almost. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want people to think that like, again, 
that philosophy or whatever I do, um, and by the way, that's just as valuable um, as any other career and things that we're doing in life. God puts us where he wants us. I don't know why he put me um, where he did in the den of the lions in academia, right? So nobody should feel like, oh, I want to actually be there and be envious. No, you don't want to. Um, it is the den of Satan. Um, these were all the bad ideas come out. And I always joke with that. There's all kinds of talk about nuance, um, different types of stupid. And a lot of the types of stupid, you got to go to the university and school to learn about and believe. And that's where I'm at. I'm in the middle of, um, so we're all called, right, to be in certain places and use our talents. I know better than any other, right? And so in this sense, we're actually very tolerant, right? That I'm here in philosophy and so I can speak in the area that I work in. And I just wanted to make sure that people, it's not all head, yeah. right? It's not all just simple art. It's very easy to, to perceive that philosophy would be like that. Um, and maybe it's because uh, many philosophers are like that, but it's not the ideal. It doesn't have to be that way. That um, there's a certain kind of therapy and relation, like all that stuff's important. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours, but. <laughs> I know. I know we went a good, we're thinking Oh, hour, hour and a half. Yeah. yeah, I forgive me. I talk too much, no, everybody. No, it's um, such an honor to have this time with you. And I'm so glad you didn't have to rush off and teach a class or something like that. So thank no, you. No, there's a, a light festival later. I think my wife and I are going to go to that on our main, main street, which will be cool. So I actually still have time to to well, go do that. Why don't you tell us about Patristic Faith and what you're going to be doing with that? Yeah, so Patristic Faith is an idea that um, I came on, uh, came up with on a vision quest when I was um, traveling with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew you were going to say something. <laughs> you know what? And before I forget, a psychedelic I wonder, experience, I, I had wonder, this vision. I wonder if we were at the same dead shows because I I went to dead shows on the West Coast. Did you go to like Shoreline and no, I didn't go to Shoreline Oakland Coliseum. Um, And I only was like year, I was gonna go to more and we're gonna go to Vegas, like on that tour was like 95 or something, like 94, 95. And I told my friend, I'm like, hey, why don't we because we're in high school. I'm like, let's just wait for him. He's going to come back around next year. And then he died. And Jerry died. <laughs> I yeah. was like, whoops. <laughs> um, the funny thing about regret, kids, is that it's better to regret the things that you have done than you haven't done. Um, <laughs> so okay, so back I to- actually got the, the idea of patristic faith about a year ago. Um, and I was thinking about... A lot of it is just working with all the different guys, like uh, Patrick from Church of Eternal Logos, and um, Jay. Jay really was the first person that I actually started working with, and then you know, 
Tristan and um, uh, Lewis and David and Michael Cisco, Michael Whitcoff, and all these different people. And we're loosely all kind of connected together. And some of these have really good big followings. And we all have the same kind of vision, um, same ethos, right? Same views about orthodoxy, about very traditional, um, that we wanted to preserve that tradition. Uh, we didn't want orthodoxy watered down. We didn't want other influences from Protestantism and the culture coming in and changing that. And I think one of the traits that we all had was that there was no fear to speak the truth, even if people would be offended. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a tough orthodoxy. It was a true orthodoxy. It wasn't, we're not going to water it down and be like, well, how can we appeal to them? Right. As many people as possible. Well, that might be. We don't want to be intolerant. People. We don't want to be intolerant. <laughs> None of us like that. We wanted nothing to do with that. And we noticed, especially the demographics, uh, the, the particular age groups, uh, the the Zoomer generation in particular, they wanted nothing that the world was giving them. They wanted nothing this marketed Orthodox Christianity or you know um, buffet style. Uh, Christianity that they wanted a hard orthodox. It was going to be difficult. Sometimes it's going to offend. We don't want it watered down. And I think our message started to appeal to that, that group, not just them, right? But like they're a large group. And through various things, both in the culture and the the stuff with the Koof science and stuff like that, things that weren't immediately present, um, beliefs and different things like that, and just lifestyles and an ethos, through all of it, it, it became more apparent that there's people in the church they're holding on, they may say they're orthodox. They might do, and I'm not judging that they're not orthodox. I'm just saying that I hope all of us going to church and we're orthodox, we're doing the prayers and stuff like that. Very little of us know, like, who are these people? What are they really like? Um, certainly, laity don't have any access to that. You put your Sunday best on. I don't know what this person, but what are their core values and beliefs? And through all of this crisis and just, unfortunately, more politicization and various kind of secular ideologies that have come in um, and influenced people, it became readily apparent that there are two fundamental types of people. And this is not political. It's not left versus right or something like that at all. I'm not talking... They're more, they're more fundamental values than, than political values mm -hmm. that people hold to that are actually incompatible. Um, none of us realize that. 
because we didn't have kind of a crisis that the things that were under the skin didn't rise up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate everything that we were going through. And again, what was shown is some people, again, have just because they're in church doesn't mean they hold the same values as traditional orthodoxy. It became apparent to all of us that they're holding secular ideas that are incompatible and destructive and contrary to orthodoxy. And now we're just seeing it. And that we don't want that. And these are the people that took offense to, and whatever names they want to call you, uh, you're unloving, you're, you're mean, you're divisive, you're political. By the way, that term is never referring to, almost never, that you're actually supporting a party or political candidate. It means, I don't like what you have to say, so you're political, yeah. right? It's like, um, and that that they didn't like the traditional things, right? They didn't like, they conceived of it in a different way that I didn't think was, um, a lot of us thought was compatible with orthodoxy. And then there was another group of people, especially among the young, that I don't want any of that. I want true orthodoxy, and I don't mean in the schismatic sense, forgive me, um, a hard orthodoxy, not a watered down, marketed, not a orthodoxy palpable to everybody mm-hmm. um, because it sounds good and it's nice. And, you know, and that's why I, I ran with this idea that, hey, maybe patristic faith isn't for everybody. I'm not trying to market to everybody. Mm-hmm. You're free. Again, I'm always like, you're free to go and get whatever you want. But what connected all of us together, and I have this quote on the site by St. John Chrysostom, we must not mind insulting men if by respecting them we offend God. Mm. And there was a real kind of warriorness among both the, the demographics, uh, uh, the larger demographics of the youth, uh, the, the Z generation, and everybody that we were loosely working with that... Priority number one, we're going to find the truth in traditional orthodoxy, preserve the faith of the fathers, the faith that established the universe, and we will never attempt to offend God, even if that means offending. You don't like it? Too bad. Like, I think you see that in all of us. Mm-hmm. And it was really easy to get all the name calling from what I call normie docs, right? Um, the normal run of the mill, right? Which I'm finding that their fundamental values are not the traditional values of their secular values, political values, things that are, end up not being compatible with orthodoxy. Well, guess what? It was here that we got the name calling. You're divisive, you're political, yeah. um, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And it was really because they're the norm. They're the majority, um, as at least in the appearance and in the parishes, it was easy to brush those people off. You're a fringe fanatic conspiracy theorist. What, 
plug in your favorite insult. Okay. You, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And I started to realize uh, we're tactically dumb. We're all operating with our own independent um, little channels. And these people don't realize we're strong. We're strong in our numbers and we're actually unified. Let's show them. And in doing so, also those who desire a rich, true orthodoxy, unchanged, uncompromised, um, and extreme orthodoxy um, can be taught. Um, and so I got the idea, we need to consolidate. You know what? It's easy to brush Deacon Ananias off or Michael Whitcroft or somebody is, oh, this is a nobody. But we're all working together. Let it be known. And so I came up with the idea of let's consolidate. Let's have a web page where all the traditional orthodoxy, the uncompromising, not the watered down orthodoxy light, but the hard, the faith of the fathers, i.e. patristic faith. Um, let's have a platform in which we host that directs all of, because people are already watching one or two of these, these people, but may not know about, what if we pulled it all together? Mm. Yeah. And we had the Orthodox faithful be able to resource whatever they want. We would be a force of good to be reckoned with. You couldn't brush it off. You're just a conspiracy theorist. You're just a divisive. No, we're not. Um, and that's kind of a psychological tactic, too, that um, some people are really good at. You make the other feel you're the freak. Yeah. Right. You're the outside. I mean, think about like what high school is like. Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> you're, you're the outlier, right? You're outlier, like theologically, you know, morally and, and people succumb more to the psychological tactics. And I'm not saying do brainwashing or anything like that, but like I, we went through in the stream, psychological tactics, um, and rhetoric and these different things are important in, in debate and theology and apologetics. And we oftentimes focus too much on the arguments. It's like, you got to get the psychology of, and the other side is very good at the psychology of, of manipulation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what's my, one of my favorite terms by Noam Chomsky, manufactured consent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, look, we learn from them. Like they, you know, the, the difference is we have the, the, the faith of the fathers on our side, the truth. So that's what I've done. And I've been taking a little bit longer with this because I'm just trying to cross all, you know, dot all my I's and cross all my T's, get the permissions and the blessings put together uh, a clergy advisory board. Right. So it's not, we're not just rogues doing our own thing and stuff like that. It's under clerical and spiritual advice as far as professionalism and doctrine um, and practicality and stuff like that. So um, you can find it's up. I, I put a few samples of just some videos on ethics that I'd actually done just to get something up. Mm -hmm. People can find it. There's an about section um, kind of talking about what the site's actually supposed to do. 
but we have several clergy that are going to be content provide some very famous ones that you all love and uh, the rest of the game, you know, that you're, you're all aware of blogs. Um, we have David just wrote an excellent piece um, on St. Cyril and um, the kind of, he specialized in the, the, the monophysite. He wrote an article on Severus of Antioch. He'll be the first one. That'll be the first blog article that's up. So we're just kind of in the process of just polishing up, get everybody's profile pictures up and then um, bam, we're gone. We'll, it'll take off hopefully with the grace of God and your prayers and support. Yes. Super exciting. I will share on my Instagram and thank you. Talk about it here on the channel. And yeah, it's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. So thank you, Allison. I want to thank you so much for spending all this time with me and my audience. Any final thoughts or any last words? Um, Let's not forget that um, keep everything in your prayers. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Um, That'll soften your heart. And um, what we don't wish the worst and the destruction of our enemies. Um, Why? Because we're Christians. We're known for love. There's nothing greater than when the persecutors repent um, and find Christ and are baptized, when the revilers, the haters, um, you know, we can get caught up, so caught up in our passion that I, I wish that God destroy this man or one or whoever, your favorite enemy, plug in your favorite enemy. Um, no, wouldn't you rather see them turn from their destructive ways and hate and, um, repent and convert nothing greater than that. You're not going to hate them when, um, or have ill feelings towards them. And so we need to pray for the entire world. Um, we need to pray particularly for our enemies to, for, for their salvation. And I just want to leave you with that too, that it's not a life of the mind. The mind doesn't know what it's doing without the heart. Um, and let us bring our minds into our hearts in prayer um, and offerings to God for his guidance and for our own healing and for the healing of the entire world. Um, wow. Thank you so much. What a blessing for my channel and for everybody watching and um just thank you so much. And I want to thank my audience too for watching, supporting. Thank you for liking this video. If you enjoyed it, sharing it with somebody in your life. And again, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at a devotional heart. It's a dot devotional dot heart. And if you want to support my mission with this channel, I don't receive any ad revenue. So if you'd like to make a donation, the link is in the description along with all of the, well, and there were even books I was going to mention today, but I'll, I'll put links to them in the description um, relating to the topic today. And um, 
Thank you guys so much for watching. Another way you can support me is keep me in mind for mentorship, coaching for a woman in your life who might be looking for somebody right now to support them with femininity, um, relationships, wellness, and uh, small business as well. I can help them um, strategize with their entrepreneurial projects. So with that, I will wish everybody a beautiful day. God bless you all. And I'll see you next time. Bye.